0: This Webmaster Radio.fm program is made possible in part by the following AFCON 2010, where affiliates always attend for free, June 21st through 23rd in Denver. Make your plans now to be at the most affordable, informative, interactive trade show anywhere. Haven't made your plans to join us? Then it's time to act fast. We have secured a limited number of hotel rooms at the fabulous Hyatt Regency Convention Center Hotel, the official host hotel of AFCON 2010. Book your reservations at our exclusive AFCON 2010 special rate by going to bit.ly slash cheap hotel. That's bit.ly slash cheap hotel. These rooms are guaranteed to be sold out fast. Remember, AFCON 2010 is giving you two days of back-to-back sessions, keynote presentations, exhibit access, and incredible nighttime networking for free. Plus, we're giving you unbelievable room specials for a limited time. Book your rooms now by going to bit.ly slash Hotel. AFCON 2010, the trade show that's free for all affiliates, June 21st through 23rd in Denver. Register today at AFFCON2010.com. That's AFFCON2010.com. The opinions expressed on this Webmaster Radio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of Webmaster Radio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of Webmaster Radio.fm is prohibited.
1: Feeling better. Looking better. Making life better. It's life tips. Life tips, life tips. life tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life Tips. Life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts.
2: Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm here with Henry Jenkins, the author of Convergence Culture, where old and new media collide, um, and is uh, a a professor at USC. Henry, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. I would love to hear a little bit about your book, but before we chime into that, I'd love to hear about your transition from my backyard, MIT, out to sunny Southern California. What what led you to the move and the change, and, and how has the migration been?
3: Well, I I had spent the first 20 years of my career at MIT studying the digital revolution, and, and sort of from an armchair perspective, seeing a lot of the changes that had taken place. And I was ready for a change. And figured no there would be no other place to see what happens next than to move to Hollywood and watch how the mass media industry has started to respond to the provocations the challenges the opportunities represented by digital communication so I figured twenty years at USC should be the right way
2: to structure my career <laughs> a great one. Tell us about the work you did you did accomplish at MIT you were part of their comparative media studies. Uh, Uh, graduate degree program uh, um, as the director of that program tell us what kind of work you were doing there that may have been a foundation for, for what you're doing now
3: Well, the Comparative Media Studies program was created to train the next generation of leaders to think about media change uh, from many different directions. It's rooted in the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences. We taught our students to think historically and critically about media, but also to be pragmatic, to apply what they were learning as humanists to a moment of profound and prolonged cultural change. And so we did... Partnerships there with industry, with foundations, with governments to study everything from new media literacies to civic engagement to new modes of consumer relations in the digital age to innovation and creativity in the games industry. So it was an incredibly productive period of time in my life and one that, you know, I can't imagine getting to the place I'm at now without having that experience of working at MIT. And during that time, I also was living for the last 14 years in an MIT dormitory, senior house, where I worked with undergraduates and really came to understand and respect the
2: way MIT undergraduates think and work. A great opportunity there as well. Tell us a little bit about um, your most recent book, Convergence Culture, um, where, where all the new media collide. Give, a, give us a, a backbone for, for what, what your book is all about. Well, um, if, if, often
3: when the industry talks about convergence, they're talking about the integration of media functions through a single device. So for one time it was a set top box. Another point, people talked about game systems like the Wii. Uh, now people talk an awful lot about the iPhone and the iPad as the convergence device par excellence. And what I wanted to argue was that that technological convergence builds on the back of a set of shifts in the way we think as a culture about media. So whether or not we live in a world where the media flows through the same device, we live in a world where every story, every relationship, every image and sound is going to play itself out across the maximum number of media platforms. That the media system is integrated even if the Media Technology is not, and that, that integration has been executed both by decisions made in teenagers' bedrooms and by decisions made in corporate boardrooms. That is, it's a bottom-up force of people taking media and using it in new ways as a result of network communication, and it's a top-down force as a result of media concentration and media companies trying to explore, create as many touch points with the consumer around their brands and media franchises. So what the book does is really provide us a way of thinking about how the digital Revolution meets mass media, and the sort of strange and interesting relationships have started to emerge as the public
2: ex- is exerted. Henry, tell me a little bit about the the, uh, the the media platforms that you're seeing in the marketplace now. What's working? What isn't working? What's hot? What's what's worthy of convergence and, and, and cultural distinction? Well, I, th- I think
3: what we're seeing is a moment of time where the consumer is becoming more and more loud, visible public across a range of different platforms. Certainly, there's a lot of interesting stuff continuing to take place around a site like YouTube, where it's kind of commercially produced media exists side by side with media produced by consumers, by nonprofit organizations, by educational groups, by religious groups, political groups. All of those groups are using that shared platform and impacting each other uh, in ways that would have been unthinkable when media was held at such... Distance from each other. I think I'm really particularly interested in Twitter right now and the functions it plays in increasingly networked society in terms of heightening our awareness of certain stories or information, even putting pressure back on the mainstream media to cover things from uh, Iran to Haiti. I think that Twitter has been a force that's played a decisive role in the ways we're living and operating today. They're all part of what I'm describing as a convergence culture, which is one not just where information flows through the same black box, the set-top box, the iPhone, the iPad, but also one where information flows across an entire integrated mediascape so that what takes place in Twitter has an impact on what takes place in CNN, that this ecology of media is what's really important to pay attention to at the present time far more than individual devices and platforms.
2: How is new media, from your perspective, influencing our behavior, our day-to-day behavior, and is it a good influence or a bad influence on our behavior?
3: Well, I think generally, chat Roulette aside, uh, it's been a very positive uh, influence on our behavior. No, I'm just joking about chat roulet. We we, we see a series of moral panics emerge around technology because as a culture, we're very uncertain of the answer to that question. That each new technology gets pushed upon uh, and examined very closely as it gets integrated into our lives. to see if it's causing problems. Certainly there are issues that get raised along the way, uh, cyberbullying, invasions of privacy, you know, so forth. But there's also enormously beneficial effects, I think, of those technologies. I do think, as a rule, we're living lives that are more socially integrated. Uh, you know, I think when we wake up and scan the Twitter feeds of our 30 closest friends, even when the what's there is relatively banal, a kind of meta-signal of, I'm here, I'm okay, how about you? That sense of being connected is really powerful, and that connection holds across geographic distances. where our time may be out of sync, but Twitter, being able to check Twitter when we want and scan through, it gives us a sense of living connected lives with each other. And in a society which is as mobile as the United States, the ability to hold on to friendship ties and social networks as we travel from place to place Plays a really crucial role in the ways we live our lives. Uh, More and more people are, you know, holding on to friendships, recovering friendships. Uh, I I can't tell you how many people from my high school and undergraduate days have gotten in touch with me since I've been on Facebook and LinkedIn and other such sites, and we reconnected, having destroyed those ties of uh, having moved across the country to pursue education, to pursue work, to deal
2: with our family lives. We're now coming back together again as a society thanks to some of these technologies. Do you have a feeling that conversation as we know it may change in how we work with people, how we relate to people that we know and care about? Is the very essence of conversation as we know it changing with, with advanced media platforms that we're seeing now? I think we're having
3: conversations through multiple channels. I certainly think that it's still the case that we can talk one-on-one or in groups with people that we work with. I'm not seeing my students in my classroom have any difficulty sustaining a three- to four-hour classroom discussion as part of a graduate seminar. Uh, I certainly don't see when I get together with a friend face-to-face that we have any trouble finding things to talk about. Quite the opposite, we jump to start uh, the conversation because we maintain closer contact with each other elect- electronically. electronically over that time. What it does support is collaboration over distance. So working here at USC, I kept the same administrative assistant, uh, Amanda, who now works out of Kentucky while I work out of L.A., and she integrates, she organizes my life from a distance, but we have a very, very close relationship. I've been on a collaborative project recently which has people in six or seven different cities around the country, and we have regular meetings via Skype or Illuminate that allow us to connect uh, in real time and to maintain strong social dimensions. I think what we're adept at is figuring out what's the right channel to communicate what kinds of information to what people. So there are times I call my wife and times I text message my wife in the course of the day, depending on whether I have some specific piece of communication to carry or want to have a social experience.
2: And so I think what we're developing is an array of different ways to conduct conversations with each other. Do you see any variation or what do you see happening with regards to mass media communication uh, versus more individual, subjective, personalized form of communication? Are we moving down a personalized track or are we moving more towards reaching a broader audience? Um, and and do, are there platforms out there right now that, 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 uh, that, you, that you feel are good examples of both, both of those uh, op- opportunities? Well,
3: certainly in an era where where Avatar can make as much money as it's done in the last three or four months, it's hard to say mass media is dead. It clearly plays certain central roles in our lives, and will continue to play central roles in our lives. But I would argue that even a mass media success like Avatar gets filtered through smaller-scale communications and communities that we're part of, so that you know, if you're a fan of Avatar, you participate through a social network that forms around that film and becomes the basis for social exchange, that Avatar bleeds over into all kinds of conversations that all kinds of people are having at at local levels, whether local in terms of friendship networks or local in terms of physical geography. So what we're seeing is that mass media is filtered through the lens of more intimate media, more personalized media is part of what I've been in this new work I'm working on calling spreadable media that is I, I don't like the idea of viral media which is often used to describe things that just sort of take off and spread through the internet like wildfire because it doesn't allow for much human agency it's metaphor is one of addiction and uh you know contamination of unknowing ca- unknown carriers. Really what I think happens is we take the resources provided by mass media as tools to support the communications we want to have at a much more personalized level. We take snatches of media, which we find on YouTube or elsewhere, and we embed them in our personal journals or blogs. We send links through Twitter. We connect to them through Facebook, and they become occasions around which we talk to different groups. We select them not just because they're part of mass media, media, but because they're valuable within specific localized context of communication. And so that integration of the two is really what interests me the most at the present time.
2: Hmm. Uh, We'll come back from the break, and we want to ask you about characteristics of what is spreadable. You know, what is spreadable media? What are the characteristics of something that's spreadable? So we'll be back in a second, everyone, with Henry Jenkins, the author of Convergence Culture, Where Old and New Media Collide. Back in a minute.
1: Life Tips will be right back after this short break.
2: BruceClay.com.
1: What
0: is this? Why is my website not ranking higher? Sounds like you could use a link
2: building report from SEOFox.com. What's that? You can't rank without good backlinks. And SEOFox.com's link building report lets you enter domains and compare their backlinks. It gives a detailed report that shows you why each domain ranks where it does and it reduces the time it takes to find more links. With SEOfox.com's link building report, you can find more links, use their search marketing services to find more links, or better yet, they could even build your own backlinks.
0: So you think you're pretty sly with that SEO Fox link building report.
2: <laughs> sly like a fox.
0: Get your link building report today at SEOfox.com. That's SEOfox.com.
1: one of the elite publishers xy7 elite is not for everyone as you need to be accepted and maintain volume requirements think you've got what it takes to be elite go to www.xy7elite.com or call 702-216-4000 702-216-4000 State of Search, Tuesdays at 2 p.m.
2: Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the International Marketing Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm.
1: And now, back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts.
2: We're back, everyone. Thanks for joining us again here. I'm here with a follow-up for a question regarding characteristics of what is spreadable. Henry, do you have any thoughts on that? What is what, what well, makes I think, something well, of spreadable?
3: You know, spreadable is what's relevant to the largest number of people. That the more people find a, a, a piece of media relevant to them, useful to them, the more likely they are to pass along. So the best, most powerful example of spreadable media in recent years has been the Susan Boyle video on uh, Britain's Got Talent, which, first of all, jumped from the U.K. to the United States before it began spreading at a dramatic rate. To see, now, how, how dramatic, considering the fact that the final episode of American Idol last season attracted about 40 million viewers, whereas at that same period of time, about 200 million people watched Susan Boyle on YouTube and other sort of video sharing sites. So the scale of that spread outswamped the biggest product of broadcast media during that period of time. As Susan Boyle spreads, she gets inserted into a range of different conversations. For example, she's used to talk among karaoke fans. She's used to talk among fans of reality television. Uh, Science buffs are discussing her vocal cords. Fashion buffs are trying to give her makeovers. Church women are discussing her prayer. Uh, pa- practices, um, mom, stay-at-home moms are talking about her as the primary caregiver for her elderly relatives. There's again and again stories around Susan Boyle which allow different communities to get a toehold on her and for her to travel. Now, this wouldn't happen if the content wasn't itself in a form that could be easily embedded, uh, can be sort of moved from place to place. If we lock down content, that sort of spread wouldn't take place. It's also that there's a kind of human drama there, a kind of emotional melodramatic trajectory of the Susan Boyle video, which is common of a lot of stuff that travels. It's either very funny, or it touches us at an emotional level, or we have that, awe that's cute response, but all of those factors mean, again, that it's a useful social resource we use to talk to each other through. We are not becoming the slaves of the media. The media has been broken down into forms which we can carry from person to person, from community to community, and use it to express something that's
2: meaningful to us. Can we create, or even to use a more crude word, manufacture something that's spreadable? Well, I I think
3: to some degree we nominate things to be spread, which is to say we can design features into into a piece of media, including just the technical capacity to be spread. And the sort of opening up of a legal space where it's pot, where we're not going to prosecute people who spread our content, to a design of content which we think will provide resources either intensely for a niche community or diversely for a more widespread community. So having those resources there means that it it's possible to spread. At the end of the day, though, things only spread if they get taken up by different communities and used for their own purposes. So we can sit there like you know like someone holding a party that no one comes to, if we create media that looks like it could be spread, but no one actually chooses to spread it. We, we have, the media has to be ultimately chosen, and it's chosen because it works for a variety of communities who want to use it to say something about
2: themselves and their relations to other people. If you were a company and a corporation and you wanted to create a campaign that was spreadable to reach tens of millions of people, how would you do that now it, if we consulted you to do that?
3: Well, again, I don't think you can guarantee it, and I think there's a lot of mystique. Part of the problem with the word viral is it sort of has this, on the one hand, a sense of secrets that only a small number of people know how to design the killer virus. And on the other hand, it has the sense of, wow, it just happened. It just went viral. And what we're saying is that, in fact, it requires cultural analysis at both ends. The first piece of analysis is to recognize that you're courting a community that exists. You're not creating a community. An awful lot of branding discourse talks about our community our brand community. But there are very few brands that generate community at that level, and if we look beneath the surface, they're building on basic social mechanisms that have a longer history. So Saturn may have at one time created a community around this car, or Harley-Davidson, around its motorcycle, but in practice, if we look back, there have been motoring clubs since there have been automobiles. And it's about co-courting the motorists, not building a Saturn community that led to that brand having that kind of intense relationship. So the first thing to do is figure out who needs to use the information you're producing. What are the populations or communities out there that are engaged with these materials, these issues? What resources do they need? How, how do they communicate with each other? What kinds of rituals of communication are taking place? And the more that you know, the better position you are to design something that can support and sustain the interest of that community. But it's not about building something magical that infects people. It's about understanding how people communicate with each other and creating
2: something that's a meaningful contribution to that. How are we learning about what's interesting and not interesting for people, what's viral and what isn't, what's spreadable and what isn't? How are we learning about the wants and needs of of, of humans to use the lack of a better word? Or community members of a group? Is there anything advanced happening there? Is there anything you're seeing on, on the forefront of listening? Because isn't that well, perhaps I mean, the, the secret? We do, the first
3: answer to that is we've got to actually build into the DNA of corporations' cultural and social knowledge seeking. Right? We have to build in the desire to understand what's happening in the society and culture around this. Uh, Grant McCracken has this new book, Chief Culture Officer, which really is making the argument that companies need someone in the C-suite who really does understand the nature of the culture around them, and it do- does it cultural investigation. They so probably need a team. I often talked about creating dramaturges for the design process. Um, a in theater is someone who looks at how the play has been performed in the past, looks at the historical setting of the play, looks at the cultural resonance of the play, and helps the director, the technical crew, and the cast prepare for the work that they're doing. And I think there needs to be kind of cultural arbiters in companies that brief the members of the company on what's going on in the culture. Having said that, then I think what we see is that the culture gives us information about itself through every available channel at the present time we've never had more information about what the culture thought what the culture did what the culture was interested in Maybe we had more specific information about subcultures communities individuals the problem is learning to read it to process it to it to aggregate it in meaningful ways and that's where i think there's still room for some tools but even more room, room for analysis and that was part of what we've been trying to do with comparative media studies at MIT and what we're doing at USC is training people Ask those questions to put together that information and be able to either translate it into a language that can be understood by stakeholders
2: mm. I want to ask you about your your, your thought and your vision on on uh, any upcoming uh, media platforms you know in, in the next two to five years do you think we'll see any? Will there be another Facebook another Twitter another YouTube and another type of uh, a media platform that just becomes a smash and a rave? Do you think we're just going to go through a series of waves of different experimentations on connection and connectivity of our thoughts and ideas? What, what's your take on that?
3: I mean, I definitely think that what's going to happen two years ago is almost unknowable right now. But that, just to take the convergence culture as an example, that book, which deals with participatory culture in some detail, came out about four years ago. It scarcely mentioned YouTube was not yet a factor, Second Life wasn't a factor, Twitter wasn't a factor, the term Web 2.0 was just coming into use when I coined that book. If we just look at the things that have come and become large parts of our lives over that period of time, we know that the specifics were probably not predictable by most people, including so-called experts, myself among them, we don't know the specifics. What we know are a couple of things. One is that our culture is going to become more participatory. That is, we want to play an active role in shaping our media environment. We want to engage actively, publicly, passionately with media content. Secondly, the society is going to become more socially connected. If we look at the last 20 years, each new platform has brought us toward more and more capacity to communicate with each other in meaningful ways. The third is that the existing functions that media serves for us are not going to go away. The newspapers, uh, books, uh, will, will, so those functions served by those old printed forms are going to continue to coexist, whether they're performed through iPad or Kindle or something else. We want text, and we want the affordances of text, even as we move into an audiovisual world. That there are no dead media; they are simply deli- dead delivery technologies, and so. If we take those three things together, we know that there's going to be constant change in the direction of participatory culture and social connectivity. We, but we also know that some of the things that people are anxious about losing won't go away, but they'll morph into something else. They may move across delivery platforms. They may, may take shape in different ways. They may be less central to the culture than they were before, but they're not going to disappear altogether. And I think there's very little evidence across the history of media change in the 20th century of new media destroying the old media so much as new media changing the ways we connect with old media
2: before we we send off and and i want to thank you in advance here for for being on the show henry it's been really great to to have you on the show to hear your thoughts and ideas and vision and where we're going i want to ask you a final question about uh... storytelling and not necessarily transmedia storytelling but storytelling in general how important is the storytelling aspect Going to continue to be um, with, with with our with our conversations and communication with people, and are we going to see any any significant advances, whether it be up or down? I mean, I look at storytelling now with text messages and the abbreviation of words and the and what's happening to our sense of spelling at a young age, is it's got to got to have an effect. But but storytelling, you know. What are your thoughts on that? Is is that the centerpiece and the critical element uh, to to really what, what we need to think about?
3: Well, I think as human beings, we tell stories. That's part of what makes us human. It's part of what has been, so been part of every human culture that we know back through written history, and we have to assume it was part of human civilization before we wrote our stories down. Stories change dramatically over time. We tell stories in different ways, depending on the affordances that media offer us. And style changes, uh, the mode of address and relationship of the storyteller to the audience. Homer had a much more intimate relationship to the ancient Greeks, able to respond to their verbal and nonverbal feedback and shape the story on the fly, than did a novelist who never met his readers, or a filmmaker who can't look beyond the screen and see what people are responding in the audience. So we're back in a more interactive moment of storytelling style shifts, again, depending on the tools we use to communicate. So we, You talk about Twitter leaving a more abbreviated style, we could t- trace that back to the telegraph and the difference between a 19th century writer like Hawth- Hawthorne or Henry James, who wrote with quill pens and wrote very long flowery sentences, and the kind of sparsity of language that Ernest Hemingway or John Steinbeck had, both of whom had written for the wire services, used the telegraph as a mode of communication, and so So the phrase telegraphing comes in. So Twitter is simply the newest version of the telegraph, and it will change our writing style just as powerfully as the telegraph represented that shift from the 19th century novels to the 20th century novels. We're seeing another shift now from 20th to 21st century prose. Right now it's provisional. No one knows quite how to write well in it. But we soon will see great artists, I think, who will construct tweets that do convey emotional power through their abbreviation, through their brevity and their conciseness, much as we could see a haiku as communicating, or a sonnet, communicating something very powerful that's quite different from what an epic poem might communicate to us. So Twitter is a new force for shaping stories. It just we don't know how to use it yet fully.
2: Henry, you're working on a new book, "Spreadable Media" with Sam Ford, Joshua Green. What's in the Convergence Cultural Consortium? What is what is what is the expected uh, uh, arrival of that book, and, and how's it going? And 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 um, what do you expect to, to to happen there?
3: Well, the book is. We hope to finish writing the book by the end of this year, and publishing being what it is, it'll come out near the end of 2011. Um, and, and we hold our breath in between and hoping that the world doesn't undergo such dramatic technological and cultural change in the interim that the book's out of date before it comes into press. <laughs> but if yeah. you want to follow the shaping of those ideas, taking take a look at my blog at henryjenkins.org is a good way to follow up and learn what I'm thinking.
2: Appreciate that. And how else would you uh, like people to get a hold of you? You mentioned your blog, henryjenkins.org. Um, is there another way people want to get a hold of you? Do you want to reach out to an email well, potentially that might be listening? Find. I'm on Facebook.
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm uh, you know I, may, I follow my email very closely. Frankly, if you put my name in something you write, given how often I check the blogosphere and the Twitterscape, I probably will find you uh, if you have anything you want to communicate hmm. to me. These days, uh, it's all you have to do is think or whistle, and uh, the author finds you. you know, I mean, all <laughs> joking
2: aside, any communication channels work and i love to hear from people really appreciate you being on the show today henry thanks very much for being here sure and pleasure thanks everyone for listening in i hope your life's a little bit smarter better faster and wiser thanks to henry jenkins the author of *Convergence culture where old and new media collide thanks again henry thanks for listening and everybody we'll see you next week thanks again